Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. It's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from the Highway 7 Ridgeline, I am back at the uh, Arkansas Homestead. Uh, this is episode 901 of the Survival Podcast. Of course, I was gone for about a week and a half. Uh, up to uh, Dayton, Montana, I actually flew into a place called Kalispell, Montana, which, uh, honest to God, before I booked that trip, I didn't even know there was such a thing as a Kalispell, Montana. But it's a beautiful place, and Dayton was beautiful, a little place we stayed at called Lakeside was beautiful, and I really enjoyed the trip overall, but boy, am I glad to be home. Of course, today, being the first show I've done since I've returned, is going to really focus on um, what happened up there, what I learned and what I didn't learn. What I would have liked to have learned and didn't have the opportunity to learn. What what part of that is my fault? And what part of that is execution on uh, on the people around the seminar's fault? What I've learned from from that. Uh, what I'm planning on doing for events in the future. Uh, and some advice for people that may be running permaculture events to uh, to make them flow better, to make them work better, to better grant people's expectations. Uh, the amazing, uh, unbelievable genius that is Sepp Holzer as a designer and my somewhat disappointment in his ability as a actual teacher. In other words, the good, the bad, and the ugly, so that if you get an opportunity to ever go work with Sepp, uh, you can do so. I would definitely recommend you do so, but I would think you might want to do it with some understanding. And if you ever get an opportunity to run a large event, bring in a big name like Holzer or Lawton or Mollison, how you might do it in a way that would better serve your audience than what the place gathering did. I'm not beating up on them. I'm just going to give you an honest assessment of what I saw, and hopefully we'll all learn something today about producing our own food, about encouraging small farmers, about what's actually possible. I can tell you that as much of a as much of a, a symbol banger I've been for the permaculture movement, that nothing has quite hit me the way that going there and seeing a Holzer design has. I'm actually blown away. I do have some things that I don't think were done right. I did take yesterday off. I spent about 19 hours in travel on Sunday. It was supposed to be 10, which is long enough. I was in a pretty negative state. I knew that I would focus on the negative versus the positive. I didn't think that was fair to the place of gathering. Definitely didn't think it was fair to Seth Holzer. Didn't think it was fair to you, the audience. So that's why we had one more day of pause before I've returned. I assure you now that after going and loading a full 8-foot by 4-foot bed of uh, compost yesterday and bringing it back to my facility and then loading it, I feel better. Work often makes me feel better even when I'm tired, so I'm going to try to do a great show for you today. Before I do, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is the Free State Project. Do you know you can vote with your feet? Have you ever thought about voting with your feet instead of pushing a button for somebody that doesn't really care what you do anyway? Yeah, you can do that because you can become part of the Free State Movement by moving to New Hampshire. Now, I know not this is not for everybody, but they're looking for 10,000 people to do it. They have over a 1,000 pledged to do so already, and many people have already made the trip uh, in advance of getting the 10,000 pledge. They've made extreme uh, movements toward the cause of liberty in New Hampshire over the last 10 years, and uh, they could use your help, whether you want to relocate there or just help them out. Uh, the Free State Project believes in what's called liberty in our lifetime. Instead of dreaming of liberty someday existing through the enlightenment of mankind, let's make it exist today. 
Let's pick one state. Let's pick a small state. Let's pick a place where we can influence the elections easily. Let's work inside and outside the system, and let's make one state an example, and let's be the example in the republic that we're supposed to have. That's what the Free State Project's all about. You can learn more at freestateproject.org. Next up today, harvest eating. I'm going to talk today about all kinds of cool things you can grow uh, things you can do to produce food on your own land, things you can do in a small scale and a large scale. And uh, this is going to be awesome, but you know, when you produce all this stuff and some of it you've never grown before or even seen before, what do you do with it? Well, cook it or prepare it in a meal without cooking it or do something with it. How are you going to do that? Well, get on over to Harvest Eating where Chef Keith Snow will tell you how to cook seasonally and locally and how to make cooking a life skill. Check him out today at HarvestEating.com. Definitely get the steak seasoning. There's a lot of great seasonings he has, but the steak seasoning is the bomb. Those of you who have been using it, I tried something recently. It was really cool. It's kind of a core seasoning, and it's good that way, but I wondered if I could get more of it to penetrate into the meat, so I took a, a few uh, heaping tablespoons, put it in my mortar and pestle, and beat the crap out of it till it was almost a powder. I then rubbed that into my meat and cooked my steak that way. I have to say that maybe you can even improve on perfection because it is a perfect seasoning but that actually brought more of it to the meat. So there's a little insider tip from Jack. Next up, remember, you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. I just found a new thing called Bottlenose my buddy Ben sent me, so maybe I'll be better about my Twitter and Facebook updates outside of just the show stuff because it looks really, really cool. Again, it's called Bottlenose. You might want to check that out. Uh, next up, remember, you can uh, you can get some really cool copper medallions at the TSP Copper Store. That's at tspcopper.com. Last but not least, do consider joining the member support brigade even though the sale is now over uh if you do that you'll support the show at uh 18.3 cents an episode on an annual membership military law enforcement peace corps and other first responders if you email me with details of your service before you join i'll send you a special discount code to thank you for your service if you think you qualify email me jack at the survivalpodcast.com put service discount in the subject line and we will try to hook you up all right with that let's get into uh the nitty the gritty the good the bad the ugly of uh, the Seb Holzer seminar at the Place of Gathering in Dayton, Montana. The first thing I have to co- kind of tell you guys is something I already knew, but I can explain it better now, and I can also give you why it doesn't really matter as long as it works. And that is a lot of what we're doing, we call it Hugel culture. Sepp Holzer would not call Hugel culture, and in the traditional use of the word Hugel culture, it's not Hugo culture. Now let's start out with what we've been calling Hugo culture for the new listeners that's going, Hugo what? Hugo culture is basically we take a whole bunch of wood, either new or rotting, we put it into a pile, we pile dirt and humus and topsoil and compost on top of it, and then we, you know, wait for the rain or we wet it down and we start to decompose those logs inside. As they begin to decompose, they become spongy, they take up a lot of water, and they slowly release that water back into the pile, reducing or completely eliminating our need for irrigation based on wherever we may be in the world and how realistic complete elimination is. But in most places, SEP can get it completely eliminated. Now, what we've been doing in this country is a variety of things like that. Uh, I did six beds where we dug down about four feet, and they look like conventional raised beds. They're working. I'll get to that in a minute, what I mean by they're working. I've done some smaller mounded beds that are up above the ground. I've done both to see how they work. Seb Holzer, when he talks about hugel culture, they're more talking about a high bed than a wood-filled bed. The wood filling is one component of, let's say, the hugel culture bed recipe. Generally, Sep is making his beds about two meters high. Two meters high, 
40, 50, 60 meters long. Sometimes they're short, sometimes they're long, sometimes they're relatively straight, sometimes they bend, but they're about two meters high. For those that are not yet on the metric system, call it two yards. It doesn't matter because he's not out there measuring it to an exact spec anyway. But the ones he was doing, uh, out at, uh, at Katarina, in fact, a meter and a half is kind of the standard. And the ones he was doing there were about two meters. So from a yard and a half, to uh to two yards. So from about four and a half feet to about six feet in height. So you can imagine a six foot tall man. Uh in fact Paul is 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 well over six foot and I would say these beds were as high as the top of his head. These were maybe about six and a half feet. And I think it's dependent on the environment, the situation and what you're trying to accomplish. But they're high, that's the point. The banks are extremely steep, a seventy degree angle. So for an average person, if you want to visualize this for yourself, the best thing I can tell you to do is hold your two hands up in front of you like you're going to do two karate chops down at a board, like straight down at a board, so that your elbows are just about in line with the edge of your body, and put your fingers straight up in the air like you're going to pray, like you're going to put your hands together in a high prayer, but instead of putting them in a pray position, put just the fingertips together. And if your elbows are just about the inside of your body, and you look at that angle, that's about 70 degrees, maybe a little bit out from there. Uh, for me, it's, 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 it's probably for most people, since I'm a kind of a wide body guy, maybe a few inches outside. But if you look in that area there, like you're making a TP shape with your hands, it's about that steep. So you look at that and you say, well, what the hell's going on here? Well, what I want you to realize is that the base of these beds is roughly... I would say about one and a half meters. This is the two meter beds that he did out there. One and a half meters wide. And then we have a 70 degree angle that's going to give us on that meter and a half, right about two meters of surface area on both sides of the bed. So if you drew a, a triangle on a piece of paper in that shape, so you would go about one and a half inches long to make it a scale, about two inches up and two inches back down, you would know you have an inch and a half across the bottom. Well, if you took that triangle and you flattened it out so that the bottom line went away and it was just the two top lines and you measured, you would get four inches, or in this case, four meters. So what Seb's done is effectively turn roughly one and a half to two meters into four meters. We've doubled the surface area. So we haven't just created a reduction in irrigation We've also doubled the surface area we can plant into. We've created two very distinctive zones. It doesn't matter if my, my beds are running north to south and I have an east and a west side, or if my beds are running east to west and I have a north and a south side or some variation thereof. Even with a straight bed on a straight axis across north, south, or east, west, I have very different climates on both sides of my bed. So now I've got an extensive microclimate that I've created. When I start grouping them, and if you look at the video, you'll get an idea of how they were grouped. So I've got beds interlocking so that one ends and then another one begins to kind of bypass as I create these funnels and tunnels between them. I, so that, that there may be, I've got a 40-yard 40, a 40 bed, and then the next bed is maybe a 30-yard bed, but they overlap by 10 yards, and they have a space big enough to, to drive a tractor in between them. That space in between is yet another microclimate. Now I take those beds and I make them in bends. 
so that they bend and they, they're artistic and maybe the last one kind of bends around and then another one bends around. It creates kind of an entryway that's closed off. I've also protected myself from a lot of wind and reduced evaporation, specifically in the center of the structure, because we're talking about building 20, 30, 40 of these things or more. So now I've increased my production area by doubling it, and I've probably left about the area that I've saved flat in between the beds. So now I can go in there and I can plant things that are more pasture-oriented in between my beds, and I can pasture animals. So now now I'm pasturing animals and growing crops on the same piece of land, and each side is getting what normally they could only get if it was exclusively given to them. Does that make sense? So if I had an acre and I did this, effectively I've turned an acre into two acres. I can give the acre that was already left over to the animals and give them an acre. Uh, of pasture, and I have an acre for growing on. That that's that's how innovative this is, and you can't really get your head around that until you stand in the middle of an area that this was done to, and then it starts to make sense. If you stand at the so you're looking edge on, so you're at the end of a hugel bed looking down it, and you see it, and you just in your mind think, okay, if I just flatten this, how much area would that take up? And you start to realize, and it might, it's probably not turning an acre into two acres, because there is a significant amount of space between the, let's say the left column and the right column of beds. Maybe it's turning an acre into an acre and three quarters. But what happens when we do that with 20 acres? Then we, 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 we turn it into 45 acres? Or, I'm sorry, no, on 20 acres, we would turn it into what, 35 acres? That's significant. Especially when I'm trying to grow as much as possible with as much polyculture as possible and get as much out of it as I can with as little input as I can. Um, another thing that I think that we're doing kind of crazy here that Sep didn't even seem to care about, they had all these trees in this kind of wetland area that he opened up these ponds and created this water flow around and then into a big pond and then it created kind of this peninsula area of I would say about four to five acres that this Hugo culture complex was built on. And there were tons of different trees, and there were aspen, and there were willow, and there was birch, and there was cedar. Yes, some cedar. There was some evergreen, different types of evergreens. And they brought the excavators and the dozers in, and they smashed it all down, and they cut certain parts out of it to use for other things, and they piled it up, and they buried it, and that was it. There was none of this sorting through, and I'm worried about this kind of wood might break down faster than this. No, no. It was just piled up, and I would say to make a six-foot-high bed, the pile of wood was quite narrow, almost reflecting, not quite, but almost reflecting the 70-degree angle, and was possibly, possibly a meter high. So you've got a meter of, of peak on top of the meter of wood. So I would say that if you wanted to scale that down, and I'm not sure we should scale it down proportionately, but if I wanted to build a two-foot-tall hugel bed, a little bitty hugel bed, then my wood should only be about a foot tall. And that's part of when, when, when Sepp looked at Paul Wheaton's drawings, he said too much wood. So I would say it's almost a one-to-one -one ratio of height over height. So if you build a six-inch pile of wood, you got a one-foot hugel bed. And it's only going to have a limited effect. You're certainly not going to get a 70-degree angle out of that, double the surface area, uh, etc. So now... 
Now that I've explained that, I'm explaining that so that later when I talk about limited thinking and expanding production and going to small scale to mid scale to large scale farming, how this stuff applies, that it'll make sense. Because I want to scale it back for a minute to those of you that have been doing what I'm doing, building these miniature, and we call them hugel culture beds, and I don't think we have a better term for it right now, so we'll continue to use it uh, in our backyards. Like my six beds I built, for those of you that don't know, Six five foot by ten foot beds. They look like standard raised beds using two by tens in a frame. If you looked at them, you wouldn't see anything significant about them, except you might notice that they're terraced. So each bed is on a terrace, uh, and then kind of drops down to the next bed, to the next bed, to the next bed. It's not real intricate terracing, but I had an excavator come out, and we just took a steel beam and drug it and flattened out each one, so the beds are relatively level. You would definitely notice that. The, the, the uphill side of the bed that's up against the edge of the terrace looks to be a little lower in the ground except that it's dead level from the downhill side. It's, just, it's a fairly significant slope that they're on. So we terraced them, uh, which would have been a good thing to do, who culture or not. Then we dug holes about three and a half, four feet deep with the excavator. And my wife and I had a huge pile of, of rotten and semi-rotten and old and new and just everything we could find already laying on the ground on our mountain of wood piled up. And the excavator operator then used the attachment on the excavator, put the wood in, smashed it down. We put the boxes on. We put the dirt back on. And then we filled it the rest of the way up using a mixture of compost and topsoil. And we've planted into them. This year... Uh, this spring, I planted uh, several dozen pepper plants and some tomato plants and some other things. I have watered absolutely not at all in these beds, and we have had days into the 90s already. We've had good rainfall, but not a lot of rainfall. I don't know that I could get through if we have like a 40-day drought without watering at all. I'll watch the plants. I'll water them when I need to, but this is what I can tell you the results are though so far. My jalapeno and my sweet peppers are approximately two and a half feet tall little bushy trees right now. One of them needs a little support. It kind of outgrew itself. It doesn't quite have the thick uh, stalks that it needs. I'll probably have to support them all because they look like I'm going to get the same type of results I did in Texas, which for those of you who haven't seen the videos there with the soil improvements I did and all, and people going, oh, my God, you, you wood mulch. It's going to steal your nitrogen. I had pepper plants that were five and a half feet tall by the end of the season. Honest to God, you can look at the videos. I'll put a link in today's show notes. I'm standing next to the pepper plant. It's five feet tall, at least. And some of them got bigger than that. Some of them didn't get that big. But that's the kind of robust growth that good quality soil, no commercial fertilizer gave. And I had, the jalapenos really weren't the ones that got the big. It was the chili peppers, uh, like, like the, uh, the, what do you call them, the poblanos, and the sweet peppers that got like that. It was incredible how big some of these plants got. But even like the jalapenos got three feet tall. And some of them, when it rained, the, the, they took so much moisture up that some of the branches like broke. Because there were so many peppers on that I hadn't picked when all that moisture was taken up and the weight of the peppers increased, they just like self-pruned and just dropped a branch. And I just went out, took the branch and, and pulled off the last piece of it that was hanging on by a thread, brought it inside, picked the peppers off, and the plant just started growing again. Well, I'm getting that kind of results much earlier in the year. They have little peppers, the sweet peppers and jalapenos, both are covered with little peppers already that are starting to get bigger and bigger. They have no pest damage. Again, they have not been watered. I watered them when I planted them to get air pockets out, and then I watered them with one 
uh, organic foliar feed that I did to them to kind of get them boosted because new peppers into a new culture bed, a little bit of issue with nitrogen uptake, wood pulling some nitrogen just to get them established, get those roots down there. And uh, so I did that and they're just doing, so it works. All right. It works. We have another bed that we planted a whole bunch of tulips and flowers in. When we got back from our trip, the raccoons have disassembled both sides of it, uh, digging out some of the flower bulbs and things like that, but it worked. We can put it back together. We're building another one, sort of on contour, more like a key line, a little bit off contour to let the water flow around the end, and uh, that's going to be about four feet wide, about two and a half feet tall, almost a meter tall, almost three feet tall, and it's going to be planted with all kinds of stuff. That Probably won't work that good this year because it's brand new wood, unlike the the aged stuff that I used because I got the wood for free from the compost facility. But by the second year, we'll irrigate the first year, we'll fertilize the first year, we'll mulch the hell out of it. As we go into the second year, we'll probably, you know, uh, that that bed will mature is a way to look at it, and it will function largely without irrigation. It works. It's just not what Seth's doing. So the reason I just went through all that is so all of you, because I already, like sometimes I wish to God I never told anybody in the audience about Hugo Culture. Because I get like a million questions a week. Well, what if I use this? What if I do that? Here's the thing. It all works. It's just a matter of how well it works. Will using small branches or large branches work better? It better is even relative there. Small branches may break down faster. It may start to do its functioning earlier, but a big, huge log may last longer, and you might have a bed that works in the first half of the year if you use small enough material, but only has a life expectancy of maybe six years. Big logs in the right climate, you know, you might have a, an 18-year system before you have to rebuild the beds. This is... This is why I think that it's important for us to just try stuff. Somebody emailed me. Hopefully they're listening today or will listen to this episode soon. Because I kind of poo-pooed the results at first. It wasn't fair. They planted some plants. They put them in a five-gallon buckets. They put a piece of, a piece of uh, white aspen in the bottom of one, not in the other. Hugo culture in a container. I've said it wouldn't work. The plant that's over the aspen has doubled the growth of the one that's not. They've been treated exactly the same. Is that enough for a conclusive result? No, we don't do one-to-one in experimentation. If we do 10 and 10 and we get repeatable results with a defined characteristic that it works better with a hoog culture in a container, we know it does. So try it. That's what I, the big thing I want you to take away from this. If you want to do large-scale production a la Sepp Holzer, one-and-a-half to two-meter beds, 70-degree angles, bring in excavators, but don't let it stop your small home-scale production because it does work. My garden is proof. Uh, I'll try to get some more video out because even when I put out video recently for you guys showing you the peppers, the difference two weeks makes is amazing. Um, it, it, it's really awesome. I have some blight on my tomatoes. I think that might be somewhat related maybe to getting the, uh, the, the compost from a compost facility. I don't know. But, you know, that stuff will remediate over time anyway. So uh, I'm going to enjoy it. I've got watermelons, cantaloupes, and cucumbers going crazy. Again, no irrigation. This is not... The northeast, you know, with, with light frost this year and lots of rain. This is Arkansas in the mountains, in the rocks, in one of the toughest climates I've ever grown anything in my life with temperatures already going into the 90s, going 5, 6, 7, 10 days uh, with no rainfall, going 2, 3 weeks without heavy rainfall. And it's working, so it does work. So I wanted to contrast those two ideas for you today. Um, I also want to talk about limited thinking. And this is one of the biggest things that I've taken away from being up there, from being surrounded by, I would say, 50% of the people in attendance were, pro- were listeners of the show. 
Uh, hopefully some of you guys are listening now, and they were awesome people. About half were freaking typical what you would think of as permaculture hippies. Didn't spend a lot of time with them. Some of them were really cool, and I did spend some. Some were kind of, you know... But I learned from both sides that both sides are guilty of limited thinking. And I've learned by some of the information and videos I've already put up from the trip that that's, that's everywhere. And I think even permaculture practitioners, people that do it every day, people that study the design manual, people that have been to a PDC, people that have been to multiple PDCs, and they were very, very different, given by a nuts and bolts, Mollisonian, Lawton practitioner, and then maybe another PDC that was given more by a, a eco-hippie. Uh, they've seen both sides of it. They appreciated both sides of it. Still limited thinking. And I'm going to give you a couple lessons about that. Um, one, and I hope I get his handle right, uh, Vetazuki, or Vetzuki, I think is his handle, uh, posted a comment, and we've had a long in-depth thread on the episode I did Friday last week with Paul Wheaton, where we mentioned that Sepp was asked a question. And I'll get to Sepp's difficulty in answering questions and how maddening it is in a bit. But Sepp was asked a question by Paul. If, if this, this property, which was roughly 100 acres, were managed, uh, with Holzer technique from one end to the other, a student of yours did everything that you teach on this property, how much do you think they could make? And he went on for like 10 minutes and didn't actually give us a number. So Paul cut him off and said, okay, look, uh, would a student of Holzer be able to make $500,000 on this property, and Holzer said that he would consider that almost a failure, that he spends about that much in taxes on his uh, uh, farm, the Kermaterhof, in, uh, uh, in Austria, and that's about the same amount of property and a very similar climate. Uh, Vetzuki said, I'm calling BS on this, because that means he's doing $2 million in sales. And we went round and round for a while with, I said, you know, one thing you got to consider is Holzer's not just selling, you know, uh, food. Holzer is selling access to the farm. And people are coming to the farm and paying like 190 euros a day just to tour the farm. And there's people there every single day. <clears throat> and that's a lot of money when you start adding up groups of 20, 30, 40 people a day showing up to tour the farm. And he's like, yeah, but not everybody can do that. No, not everybody can do that. But I'll bet you, I'll bet you that if anybody, and I'm going to get to the kind of limited thinking of, of, of Katarina and, and her thing at the place of gathering as well, and, and it's okay to have limited thinking if you just don't want the results, uh, the full tilt results, but if you built a, a, a replica of the Kermaterhof here, which, which Holzer's given all the information you could need to do so, there's no one that couldn't do it if they wanted to spend the time and the money and effort. If you built it here, you would be able to sell access. Would 10,000 people be building 10,000 of these things all be able to sell access? Probably not, and not in large numbers. It, 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 it does what it does for him from that side, the tourist side of the business, because he's the only one there. And it's because it's so complicated and hard to do in Europe. He, you know, believes in asking for forgiveness rather than permission. He's been fought the entire way. Everything that he's done has been questioned by authority. And as much problem as we have with authority and regulation here in the United States, you're much more free to do it here than, than, than Europe. Far more free to do it, especially in many of our states. So that could be done. So that alone takes it away. But what his point was is, until I see hard numbers and know for a fact and I want to see people's balance sheet, well, listen, Tool, no one's going to give you their balance sheet. 
Do you really think that little small farmers all over America are reporting every dime of revenue that they have so that they can pay the tax man? They don't want to disclose their financials, fool. That's one side of this. But the other side of this is arguing that it can't be done when people are already doing it is limited thinking. It's also like, okay, so a person sitting there going, well, there's no, you know, he gave Salatin. He said Salatin makes about $3,000 an acre. So, so there's no way you could be making five if Joel Salatin can only make three. Well, if I can turn an acre into an acre in three quarters, I go right from three to five, even if I do everything the same way. And then I don't do everything the same way. I'll get into some of the things that are different in a bit, but I just wanted to kind of point that out. You've got people doing it. You've got people traveling the world because of it. You've got it being put in place in Montana. We're, we're, and I'm going to tell you that people around the area are already blown away showing up and asking the help. That's how impressive it is. Uh, there's a guy that donated thousands and thousands of dollars in free plants just because he saw the scope of it. And, the, and the, I think what touched him most was the young people that were involved. You know, he was selling a few plants to them, you know, some raspberry canes, stuff like that. When he came over and saw it, he's like, just, just here, I got stuff that will regrow. Just take it. He gave them basically enough to stock a nursery uh, for free. And, and, and that's what, that's how special this is. So that, that's one. Now another thing is I, I shot a little video. I apologize for the wind. We either did it then or I didn't get it for you at all. But I noticed a very large wild rose bush, tree, shrub, whatever you want to call it, on, uh, Bill, who I was staying with's property. And as I'm looking at it, I thought, it might be neat to propagate that. So I pulled a few hips off of it, like four. And each hip, is, because they're old from last year, they're all dried out now, they're nothing but seeds, had, you know, dozens of seeds in it. So I thought, that's plenty. And I got to thinking about it, and I thought, you know, when I tell people this, they're going to be like, can I have some? And I'm not mailing them out to people. I might put them on a seed exchange or something, but probably not. I don't have a lot of time to mail stuff out. But if I happen to see somebody that listens to the show and they want some, I can give them some of these these seeds or what have you. Or maybe somebody wants some, and I can send them a bunch, and they can propagate them and, and, and make them available. I don't know. But just I thought maybe I should get some more. And these hips, and I, I looked all around the area. And all the wild rose had these little bitty hips, and these were big old hips. Like you could tell when they were swollen up fresh, they were as big as anything to come off like a Rosa Ragusa, which is a very good rose for producing rose hips. Why would you want to do that? Vitamin C, rose hip jelly, rose hip tea, good stuff. Okay. Uh, but I looked at this, and we decided we would go back. Dorothy and I decided, hey, let's go out there and get some more hips. So we're just out there, and the wind's blowing, and it's cold, and that's why there's the wind in the video. And we're picking them. And I'm realizing, like, there's certain ones I don't want to touch, right? And I'm, I'm picking the ones that are easiest for me to reach, and they're about six and a half foot tall and out on the outer edge. And then I realize something while I'm picking them. I realize that, that there are no easier ones than those. And once I pick all of those, and I've only got like half of a cup full, I want more, so I put a glove on and start picking them on the inside. While I'm doing that, I realize where all the other ones went. Deer loved them, and the deer ate them. The deer came and they ate all the easy ones, but when it came to shoving themselves into those thorns, even the deer are like, yep, I'm going to go eat some grass. So effectively, it's a deer barrier. So I put up a video and I say, look, you could plant these in a perimeter around your property and use them as a deer barrier. I didn't really go more into it than that, but I got comments from several people on YouTube, a couple people that have no idea who I am, never listened to my channel before, and bitched about the the, the, the wind. I said, hey, look, I'm on vacation slash a seminar. You get this, you get nothing. One commenter was freaking rude, not to me, but to you guys, to the other commenters, and I banned his ass fast. Because you, you could be rude to me on YouTube, and I might just delete your comment, but you're not going to be rude to the other commenters. So uh, I got rid of him. But anyway, 
A couple of people said things like, you know, well, it's not practical. It won't work. Yeah, you know, typical shit I hear all the time, right? So I'm like, the one person kind of explained it. They, they take a long time to get that big. So you, you look at a very long-term solution if you do that. If it's a really bad lean winter, the deer will go in there and eat that anyway and deal with the thorns. And they'll actually even eat the plants is what this person said. And, and, and on and on and on. It was reasonably well thought out. But see, it's limited thinking. Here's why. I, I responded to the person said, well, what if I put a one-meter earth berm up first? Right? And they said, I think I see where you're going, but I don't see a one-meter earth berm stopping deer. Well, what if it's kind of like a hugel bed without the wood? What if it's kind of one meter high and it's 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 plateaued on the top? And on the inside where I take some of the material, I create a crater garden. So as you come down off the one-meter wall, you're coming down two meters. I go very steep walls, again, the 70% angle, but much wider at the base, and I'm only going a meter high. And let's say the top of that is flattened out, and it's, let's say, I don't know, two and a half feet wide, wide enough to walk on there as a path. And then I go up on there, and I plant my rosa ragusas up on that berm. Well, that berm is going to have somewhat of a hugel culture effect from the wicking action and from the water retention and everything else. And I can plant then on the, the front side of it facing outward all types of other things that have briars in them like blackberries and raspberries and gooseberries and things like that. And I can do something similar on the inside wall. And then if my rose, roses actually get up one meter, this is where the person's thinking is limited. Now they're two meters high from the ground. If I go out and when I build this, this structure, I disturb a lot of earth and I seed all along my wall all different types of perennial greens that deer like to eat, like clovers and whatnot, and I do that, and maybe not all of my barrier is built this exact same way. Maybe I'll find that in my climate the roses do better facing the south or the north or what have you, based on whether I'm far north or far south and what my climate extremes are. Maybe on another uh, wall I use something like Osage Orange. Maybe on another wall my primary barrier is something like hazelnut, and I put each one in the bioregion that's best for it. Maybe I interplant them and encourage the ones that do best based on the microclimate they're, they're in. But in addition to the barrier, I'm also putting all of this forage crop out for the deer. That funnels the deer along the wall versus over the wall. That funnels them away to eat my neighbor's food or other wild foods, and then that creates a complete barrier. Did I explain all that? No. Is it my responsibility to explain all that? I guess on this show, yes. But as I expose one problem-solution relationship, it's also incumbent on people to start putting this stuff together for yourself, not to wait for me to do it for you. So that's the limited thinking that, oh, all this is going to be is planting rose bushes and that won't work. Well, first of all, you don't know it won't work. First of all, you do not. Well, the time frame, I do, did I say that it had to work this year? Or am I simply thinking long term? If I'm building a permaculture system, I'm not thinking about next year. I'm thinking about my grandchildren. The only responsible, the only ethical choice is to accept responsibility for that of ourselves and that of our children. If I'm accepting responsibility for the existence of my children, I'm obviously going to be concerned about their children because their children are important to them. So I'm thinking minimum three generations when I'm doing a permaculture system. So who cares if it takes five years for them to get up in a specific area to a point where they do their job? Do they ever get there? That's the key. That's just another way to think about things. Who says it has to be one row? Who says that's not the outer wall and then there's not an inner wall? And the inner, I mean, there is no limit to what can be done. 
and that's another example. And then I also want to talk a little bit about something more about what was being talked about on site. The lesson of permaculturist A versus permaculturist B. So as we're looking at the land, I'm looking at it very much from a Jeff Lawton point of view. Because for me, I am all about getting the most amount of water work for the least amount of effort. And Lawton's big on swales, and I've never even heard Holzer use the word swale. Many of the paths that he puts in end up being on contour and have a swale-like effect. A terrace that he's very fond of is really a big wide swale in, in kind of a sort of a way. But Lawton's big on we bring the excavator in, we put in a couple kilometers of swales in a couple days, very low cost, a couple thousand dollars more water being used in the landscape than dams, and then we put the dams in on top of it. And, and, so I'm out there, and I've got my little uh, eye line, le- eyesight level, and I'm looking at the contours of the land, and I'm in my mind, I'm contrasting what Jeff would likely do and what Seth would likely likely do, and I'm thinking about how to put the two together. When asked about it, and I start talking about the swell systems, it was almost inevitable that somebody would start talking about how what Seth does is better. And we should just pay attention to what Seth's doing. Especially from what I call the hero worshippers and the hippie fringe. And my thought is, again, limited thinking. It's not who's better. The, the, the whole concept of permaculture is, it's not about you do A, B, C, D. It's not about Joe does A, B, C, and D, and Fred does A, B, C, and D differently, and we pick which one of those to use. Permaculture's best thought of as a wardrobe. So a swale... Uh, right, a swale itself is like one particular type of clothing, and then we have big swales and little swales and long swales and short swales. We have swales that are designed to be micro swales and then kind of converted into almost a chinampa feature and done into a vegetable garden. Great big swales to grow food for us. We have hugel beds like set builds that are designed for large scale production, and we have hugel culture beds like many of us are building in our backyards. And it's not right and wrong. It's all these things going to a great giant wardrobe closet. And then uh, we as a designer look at a piece of land and we say to ourselves, what do I want this to do for me? And do I want to live there? Or am I doing it for a client? Does the client want to be a farmer or does the client want a sanctuary with a lot of food to pick and much of it will just be left for wildlife or stock? Does the client want livestock or does the client not want livestock? Do they want large bodies of water or do they want small bodies of water? Do I want large bodies of water or do I want small bodies of water? Do I want ponds primarily for farming fish? Or for recreational fishing, and do I want to swim in my ponds? Do I want my water deep for this reason or shallow for that reason? Do I want to grow prawns and crawdads, or do I want to grow carp, or do I want to grow trout? Does that work in my climate? These are all the questions, and all of these techniques from all these wonderful people, uh, seed balls from, 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 uh, uh, what's his name, um, Masanobu Fukuoka, if I, I can use that for guerrilla gardening, or I can use that to create a pasture. Uh, Sep didn't seem to like the idea. That's fine. Sep can do things Sep ways. Uh, students of, of Masanobu can do things that way. But why Why would I, as the third party, say, I'm only going to do Holzer, I'm only going to do seed ball techniques? It just doesn't make sense. Or I'm only going to do swales and be a Latin follower. This, this kind of thing of, well, so-and-so did this, and that's better than, no, no, no. This is all about designing to the goals of the individual that will be managing and caring for the land. And for some of us, 
we might have 20 acres, and even though we could actually build a business out of it, we don't want to. We really don't. Or we want it to be a very small piece of what we do. For many of us, we have 20 acres. We don't even want to cultivate 20. We want to cultivate five. And that could still be enough to be a business. But maybe we don't even want to really do that to a business level. Some of us would have 20 acres and want to put in nine acres of water. And some of us would want to use that to farm fish, and some of that would want to use it just every day. I know that my ponds have different cycles, and that's where I can go get fish to eat on my plate. And and then that's the lesson that we need to take away from this, that when we start identifying more with one technique or one person than the other, we're ignoring all the other things in the wardrobe. Now, that doesn't mean that I might not look at a piece of land and go, don't need hoo-hoo culture beds here. Don't even want to do who culture beds here. Doesn't fit in. This is an urban project. It's in a neighborhood. A six-foot-high bed is going to attract attention that I don't want it to attract. And then it doesn't mean that I might not go somewhere else and go, I can put who culture beds way in the back here where it's the most difficult place to get the water in and use it there and use more conventional irrigated crops up front. And then Paul Wheaton would step in and say, but we don't need irrigation if we – but that doesn't matter. What do I want to grow? Where do I want to grow it? How do I want it grown? How do I want to harvest it? As long as we're following the ethics and the prime directive of permaculture, it's permaculture. Lawton's not better than Holzer. Holzer's not better than Lawton. Mollison's not better. It just, it's just dumb. And it, it, it should all just stop. If you want, I don't care if you do it, because it's up to you what you do with your own life. But if you want to be able to do the most when it comes to looking at a piece of land and creating your own design, you have to let go of the allegiance to one idea versus another and think about what you want the land to do. What's the solar aspect? Where does the wind come from? How do you want it to work? Why do you want it to work? What do you want it to look like when it's finished? And not be limited by any concept like this can't be done or this won't be done or who did it before or what kind of what. It doesn't matter. Just get going. Just get doing. Design is an active role. Um, I also want to talk a little bit about one of the big things I took away, and I already kind of knew this, but... Uh, Holzer's huge on water, uh, and he was putting in one major dam and basically expanding some some water features that were already there to make them into much better water features. But his view is that we should be using water for more than just irrigation. We also can use the water to grow fish and then sell that to market. When we have dry periods, we can let some of our ponds actually dry out. We can go right into the bed of that pond and we can plant a crop, we can plant that crop, we can harvest that crop. When the water comes back, it'll kill all the weeds, kind of like rice paddies on a much bigger level. And, and it's just something to start thinking about. I, want, I don't want to really go too deep into it than that. Just understand that water should be seen not just as irrigation, not just as a feature, not just as something to fish in, but actually something to cultivate with it. Aquaculture should be part of what you're doing. And we generally think of aquaculture in the tropics and subtropics with water chestnut and all this other stuff, taro root and things like that they grow in the tropics. But if, if Sepp's doing it in the Austrian Alps, then we can do it anywhere. And to me, that was a big lesson. He also talked, and this was an interesting question that somebody had, and hopefully they'll listen to the episode because I'm probably not going to get to answering it on the blog. Uh, so busy climbing out of the hole that I'm in now for being away for, for 12 days. Uh, but we had talked about how he's making part of the pond really, really deep so that the pond will never ice over. And the person said, well, there's these huge lakes where I live, and they're very, very deep, and they ice over whenever there's a good solid winter, uh, all the time. People drive their trucks on them. How does that work? I don't think it would work in a very large dam. 
He's like, you're talking about building a dam of a few acres. It works differently. It's about creating high and low. So you get shallow and deep zones in one very, very deep zone. And water is the only substance in the world that breaks one of the fundamental laws of, of, of physics, basically. Everything else, the colder I make it, the more dense it becomes and the, the heavier it becomes and the more it would, let's say, sink if it were in something that it was previously buoyant in. Does that make sense? So if I make something cold enough, it will eventually sink, whether it was something that was buoyant in air. If I make it cold enough, it will sink from the air. If it was something that was uh, was buoyant in water, if I make it cold enough and dense enough, it may begin to sink in water. And, you know, behave differently in salt water than fresh water. Salt water is more buoyant. But the, you, you got the basic concept that as, as an object is heated up, it expands. And by expanding, it becomes less dense. This is basic, you know, physical science. And as we chill it down, it becomes more and more dense, and the, the, the particles in it actually get closer together, and the density increases. This is why bridges have to have space joints, because they expand and contract with the heat. So... When we go into a lake, and we, we swim in that lake, and it's the middle of summer, for instance, the water's very, very warm up top. As we start diving down, the water gets colder and colder and colder the deeper we go. So we think the coldest water is always on the bottom. But something very interesting happens with water, and we're lucky it does, because life as we know it on Earth simply could not exist if this was not true. As water begins to approach freezing, the process reverses. And what I mean by that is ice floats. Ice floats. Think about that. If water did what every other thing does when it's chilled, and you put a glass of water in the freezer, it would freeze from the bottom up versus the top down. And let me ask you what would happen to all life on Earth if our oceans, lakes, and rivers froze from the bottom up. Not a pretty picture, is it? Okay? So... If we have a small enough body of water with different zones in it, and the surface temperature of the earth is being released onto the water on the bottom, and that water is turning over as it tries to freeze, it's not that the lake won't freeze, it's that if we do it just right, and I can't say that I got it in my head perfect enough to do it yet, but if we do it just right, in all but the most extreme winters, some portion of that water will stay open. So there will be ice all around the edges, and there will be this open pocket where this water's turning over. That's how I understood it. So that's another concept on water. Lesson of the excavators. Look at your project. This is the best way I can summarize this quickly and efficiently for you. Decide how big of an excavator you think you're going to need, 20 ton, 30 ton, whatever, and get one to two sizes bigger than you think you're going to need. Sep's still probably going to tell you you need a bigger one. Uh, the first thing Sep said when he looked at 20 ton excavators, too small. 30-ton excavator showed up better, still too small. He wanted a 60-ton excavator with a rotating bucket. And uh, that was another similarity I saw between uh, Lawton and, and uh, uh, Holzer. Both are very fond of these, these buckets on your excavator. Just rather than up and down, they can go side to side. There was only one there that could do it. It was a rather small one. And apparently these aren't very popular in the United States yet, especially west of the Mississippi. So it may be hard to come by. But the biggest excavators you can get to do your projects are probably best if you're doing large-scale projects. If you're doing a small-scale project, 
You might want one of these little bitty things that almost looks like it'd fit in the back of a pickup truck. It won't, but you know what I'm talking about. A little bitty, little bitty back hose, a little bitty track hose, um, would be better because they'll do less damage. But if you're doing big projects, you know, acre, acre ponds, even half acre ponds, uh, these big hugel beds, you can move faster and get more done. Even though they cost more, they're more cost effective and they do a faster job. Uh, so that was the lesson of the excavators. Um, I also learned about, there's a lot of seeds. That would be the best seeds we could be using for our polycultures. Uh, if we want to grow grain, there's these amazing ancient perennial grains. Uh, but you can't get them in America. Because our government has decided they might be dangerous. Yeah, so it might be dangerous to have wheat and barley and things like that. And, and ancient forms of corn that don't look anything like the corn we think of. That you, you grow them. And the first year they produce nothing. And the second year, like a whole crap load of stalks. Like 30 stalks come up from each plant. And then you cut the heads off, and you cut the stalks down, and then it looks like it dies, and the next year it does it again, and again, and again, and it keeps sending up more and more stalks. And it starts producing more, and more, and more. And even being the paleo guy, I can see feeding grain to certain animals, uh, being highly valuable. And if I'm gonna eat some grain, some ancient, non-screwed around with grain might be better for me, and make amazing bread, which Sep says it does. There's many other seeds that Sep has. And what he explained is he could not bring them into the United States. But he told a little story about how, you know, somebody might uh, have a carrier pigeon eat some of it and poop on the ground and accidentally they show up. Uh, or that you're allowed to bring muesli is what he called it, which if you know the cereal brand, muesli is basically cereal, you can bring that with you to eat. So if you brought some cereal to eat and it was all these different seeds and some of it fell on the ground, whoops. So some of this stuff, I'll just say, ended up on Katerina's farm. And... If she's smart, and I'm not sure how smart or not smart she really is, and I'll I'll get to some of the negative in a bit, she will cultivate the hell out of this stuff as it comes up, and she'll go into the business of selling those seeds. Because I promise you right now, if the guy would have held up five ounces of that seed to that group of people that were sitting there listening to him talk about it, and said, I will sell this five ounces of seed for $50, he would have sold it in a heartbeat, and people would have said, can I get some too? The seed is extremely valuable. Now, as more and more people produce it, its value will decline over time. Of course it will. But it will still have tremendous value. And we're a long way away from being able to order it out of every seed catalog on the planet. And there are other seeds that I won't go into that seem like amazing things we should be growing. Some of it may eventually be available here. Some of it may not. But it starts to, to get us thinking along the lines of let's work with what we have. Let's increase the diversity of what we have, and let's never pass up the opportunity to collect seed. Uh, I would encourage all of you to start doing things like visiting farmer's markets, especially when you travel. Who say, well, if I visit a farmer's market when I travel, Jack, and I buy a, I find some really awesome peppers, I can only bring so many home, especially on an airplane. But how many seeds can you bring home? When you talk to a person at a farmer's market and say, well, tell me about these peppers. And they say, well, we, I, I grow these in southern New Mexico, and I've been doing this for like 50 years, and these are the seed, and this is the plant that, you know, my grandfather was growing, and, my, and it's an heirloom that's not in a catalog. Even if they say, well, it's X variety, and you've seen that in Seed Savers Exchange, unless they're the ones providing the seeds, that seed, that seed does not freaking exist in a catalog. So I think everywhere that we go, we should be acquiring seed. That's why I picked up the rose hips. And that's why every time I go anywhere and I see anything that might sprout, I take it home with me. And I think we need to work hard to develop more and more diversity in the seed strains that we already have. And, and that was a big lesson that I, I kind of took away from things as well. Um, 
Then the next thing is polyculture. What polyculture is in a sepulchre design. You don't know. You don't have a clue. You don't get it if you haven't seen it. Uh, I can't even really explain it, though I am going to attempt to try to do so for you right now. But I'm going to tell you, however impressed you are, it's 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 it doesn't begin to really convey what it's like when you see it. So when we started planting these plants, uh, we were planting gooseberries, currants, raspberries, and josta berries. Those are known as josta berries, especially a currant and gooseberry cross. Uh, some different trees and some things like that. There were some beds that weren't a typical hugel bed. They were much lower along the, 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 the banks of both sides of this water feature. He built about a one meter high berm and those were all planted with trees and they, they, those berms were created by the excavators sitting on the side of the bank and pulling this muck right out of these lakes, creating these deep zones along the edges and creating more flow through there. And in the end, this thing makes like a big horseshoe, and it's like deep water, deep water, and then this really shallow river that that runs across things that I probably won't explain today. It's probably something I'll explain in the future when I do something like using water in the landscapes. And then it connected and went back around to this huge pond that was probably two to three acres when it's when it's finished. But into the big beds, again, we planted the group of plants that we talked about, and it was kind of interesting that they're planted almost sticking straight out, not up and down, but out from the bed. Some of the plants that will sprout roots were planted so they actually were planted up against the bed and then dirt piled on top of them. But the density didn't really impress me. Actually, I thought it would be denser just based on what I've seen of Holter's operation and how much stuff's there. But we weren't done yet. Then we started planting potatoes and a coarse seed mixture. The coarse seed mixture was peas and beans and corn and, and some other things, bigger plants. And uh, so that was cool. And then we were planting those. And then potatoes. Um, again, this was maybe four acres that was done up. I don't even think it was four. I'm thinking two and a half, three at the most. This guy wanted 1,500 uh, kilos of seed potato. Seed potato. And that's about what was planted. 1,500 kilos. But we're not done yet. That was so small. When you realize, like, you know, you're spacing them a couple feet apart and putting them high and low. Okay, so that's done, and this other seed mix is done. Then he comes back with what he calls his fine seed mixture. And he makes this seed mixture. Don't ask me for the recipe, because for God's sakes, one of my complaints was he wouldn't actually give the recipe. Right? Uh, and a lot of it, I think, is because some of the seeds, it doesn't do you any good for me to tell you to use this, this, and this when you can't get it. But he made this seed mixture that was like salads and wild grains and ancient grains and all this stuff. And he made huge buckets of it. And he wouldn't let anybody else touch it. He had people uh, throwing dirt to practice to see if they could learn the technique. But he said he had to do this. And it didn't look that impressive to me, honest to God. You, you take a little handful and it, you're kind of throwing it in the air and you're, you're rolling your, your, your thumb across your forefinger as you throw the seed out that way. So you've got a little reserve in your hand and you're kind of feeding it up and you're getting this fan motion so it spreads out evenly. Now to be fair, remember, uh, a carrier pigeon had to accidentally drop the seed in the United, so there was some rare seed and he wanted this done right. But when you realized how much of that went on top of the potatoes and the beans and the corn and the peas and the josta berries and the, the I mean, it was like, oh my, I can't even envision this much stuff fitting in here, but yet it will. 
And in certain areas, certain plants will do better, and in certain areas, certain plants won't do so well. And the concept is now we harvest our seeds, so we're producing our own seeds, so we eliminate that expense. This guy is absolutely not only no GMOs, no hybrids. That's also something. I don't have a problem with hybrids in the backyard. Hybrids are simply a cross between two strains. Happens naturally in nature all the time. Every heirloom seed we have today started out as a hybrid. Hybrids are not evil. But if I'm a farmer and I need 400 pounds of seed a year of a particular variety, uh, then I really want it, if I can make it work, I don't want to use hybrids. I want to use a repeatable seed that I can get my own seed from. And I can sell that seed and get independence. And that's why he thinks that way. So that was awesome. But the polyculture... Um, I can't even begin to imagine. Now, some of the other things we were planting, rhubarb was also in these beds. Sunchokes, right? Uh, Jerusalem artichokes. And the Jerusalem artichoke was so amazing when he started explaining why you're going to grow it. I'm like, you can grow tons of these things. If you plant one big Jerusalem artichoke in good soil, uh, it can produce 10 pounds or more of tubers. Right, and there was one guy on YouTube pulled one out and weighed him. He and I, I don't know the exact conversion. I think it's about two point two kilos to a pound, or how, how's that work out? Let me check that so I'm not saying something stupid. Yeah, one kilo is two point two pounds. So just call it one to two, right? So remember, he wanted fifteen hundred kilos of potatoes. He wanted over three thousand pounds of potato seed to go on this. <laughs> think about that. Really think about that. But this guy on YouTube, he had twelve kilos. 12 kilos of sunchokes from a single plant. That's 24 pounds of tubers. And Seth's like, hogs love them. Lots of protein. Good food for hogs. Hogs will eat the top parts too. So now you can envision this guy running hogs in between the hoogle beds, running through as the sunchokes are maturing, yanking them out and pitching them down and feeding his hogs right from his beds. But yet that, that space was still growing all this other stuff because I've almost doubled the space area that's available. Plus there's stuff down there for my livestock to eat down in, in between the beds. Plus maybe there's paddocks somewhere else that are managed differently. That's that's the level that's going on here. The complexity is unbelievable. And I'm going to leave the polyculture because I know I'm going to go long today already. And uh, uh, but I, I just I, I want to kind of get get across to you that whatever you think the limits are to how many different things and how much density you can create, you're not there yet. And I know you're not there yet because I'm not there yet. And I know that we're both not there yet because I've now seen it and I still. When I do this for the first time, I'm going to struggle with the amounts. I'm going to, it's going to be, I'm going to have to get over everything that I've been told about spacing and all this other crap and just do it. And if I'm going to struggle with it, and I know a lot of the audience how, I'll just say, just do that and you guys will struggle with it, you're really going to struggle with it. Just whatever you think it is, multiply it by 10 and you might be there. And I think it's important so that you'll start pushing your own limits. So maybe you won't go there. But maybe you'll go two or three times where you're comfortable with now. Um, I've heard people, especially on Paul Wheaton's show, say stuff like, I think I overdid the polyculture. It's not possible. Nature doesn't overdo the polyculture, so you can't either. Uh, it was just pretty amazing. I also want to start talking a little bit about some of the things I learned not to do now, a little bit of negative stuff at the end, because I think it's important, and I'm going to finish up with something very, very positive. Uh, as well. So I, and I think I've, I've, I've kind of like convinced you now that I feel like I got a lot out of the event, that, uh, that Sepp Holzer is a freaking genius at design, so that now when I say negative things, it's not so negative, and I can be honest about it, because I think it's important to look at that too. I want to talk about recipes versus observation versus what I would call common decency and straight answers. Sepp was asked many times, what, can you give me a seed recipe? 
just like a seed recipe. So I, I can mix this and I can do this. And his answer was no. In a roundabout way, he'd say, ask nature. Ask nature. So just do it and see what works. And then whatever works, do that again and take the seed that grows the best on the worst soil, and that's the most valuable seed, and put that in your mix, which is true. And it's probably better than a straight recipe. But let me give you an example of what I considered like it really being in poor taste not to give some basis of an answer. And some of this may be due to the fact that Seth speaks German. He's got a German translator. And somebody asking a question in English through the translator and answering through the translator. But it didn't seem like I could chalk it all up to that. So a guy stands up and asks a question. To me, there were some stupid questions, and I understand that you would get tired of being asked stupid questions. Somebody, If somebody tells you there's no such thing as a stupid question, they've never been the person giving the answers before, because there are stupid questions. This was not one. He said, and this proved that he had been paying attention. He said earlier, and this was like, I didn't even hear this, so this had to be very early on in the seminar. You said you would not build culture beds in a hot climate, like a Mediterranean climate. In, in the su- in the spring or summer, you would wait till the fall. And that you also think that they should be planted and seeded as soon as they're built before they have a chance to begin eroding or hardening or settling. You want to get the root base in there. And Seth's getting this translation and yeah, 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 that's, that's what he said. And he says, so I was wondering since we're planting in the spring here, this one group of seed mix that you're planting, what would be a seed mix that I could plant in a Mediterranean climate? when I'm building my beds in the fall. And Seth goes on this tirade about how it doesn't matter what kind of soil you have. It can be silt. It can be clay. If you put these these trees and the nails on it, like I said, it won't erode, and on and on and on and on. The guy's not asking about any of that. He's not questioning whether it'll grow, whether it'll work. He's asking for seeds that he can plant in the area that would do good in a Mediterranean climate in the fall to establish the bed. He got no answer. Okay, that's where I'm going to say that Seb Holzer goes over from being genius designer to someone without some decent common decency and straight answers, right? And I know that'll piss some people off, but I'm sorry. These people paid thousands of dollars to go there, and it really pissed me off that this guy couldn't get an answer. And I just started saying to him, look, dude, okay, um, oh, I forgot, back to the positive, onions, uh, garlic and shallots also went into those hugel beds. So I'm like, onions, garlic, and shallots, right? There's some stuff you can put in. Arugula, uh, winter lettuces, fava bean, bell bean. So I, you know, winter pea. So I started giving this guy some stuff kind of on the side that he could do. And I, I gave him a short list. But here was my, my kind of justifying this off both sides. My feeling is that Sepp, especially with the German-Austrian mindset, is if I tell you, here's 20 things to put in your recipe, the next thing you're going to ask me is how much of each. And if I break down and say, you know, per pound do an ounce of this, a half ounce of that, and give you that recipe, you're going to lock yourself into limited thinking, and that's what you're going to do. And you're going to do that every time. But that's not how permaculture works. And, and my feeling is that SEP is a permaculturist that doesn't really understand the science of permaculture. That will also piss some Holzerites off. But, you know, SEP did a great job of explaining Zone 1 without ever using the term Zone 1 when he was talking about creating this exit from Katarina's house and how it would bring you out, but never talked about things like farm forestry. And so Sepp, to for the permaculturist student to understand really where he's coming from, is a guy that does things so amazing, so natural, so beautiful, that the Permaculture Institute, who has rights to the word, without making him go to a PVC, said, go nuts, use the word all you want. But it doesn't mean he understands zone and sector analysis, or that he would use the terms in describing them that we would, even though he might understand them. So, he might not also understand the concept of wardrobe. 
that I talked about at the beginning, which is I give you all the techniques and all the ideas and all the recipes and things that have been done and what grew here, and you pull from it as you choose to as you design your landscape. So to me, when when someone's paid thousands of dollars to listen to you talk, and they say, give me a few seed freaking examples to plant, even if you don't like it, you shut up. Well, you actually you open up and you tell them. You say, here's some things, and then build off of that. And here's some things I use that you can't, but maybe you will be able someday and keep an eye out for it. And, and maybe he's just tired of being asked, but to me, that's what you do when people spend a lot of money. Um, I also think that there's a, an understanding that there's people that make light of teachers. You know, those who can't do teach. And there, I, I think that's like really short-sighted and asinine and arrogant. And usually the people saying it can't do either one. So, but I do think that most cliches have some truth to them. And I think that the underlying truth in that cliche is some people will excel at teaching and other people will excel at doing or ap- applying knowledge. And it's very few people will excel at both. And the greater the excellence in one area, often the lower the excellence in the other. I'm a good doer, personally. I'm a great teacher. And I don't say that out of arrogance. I just say that out of of observation. I had a group of people on the last day that I was there, Friday morning, standing up on a hill, looking over at the dam that was being built. They had talked about a keyway uh, going into the dam, which I'm not going to get into today. too complex for today. Again, water in the landscape will be a show in the future. I'll, I'll do it then. But none of them understood a keyway. And a keyway locks a dam, basically, and keeps the dam from draining when the material is not right and good to do even when the material is right. And none of them understood a keyway. None of them understood a swale. None of them understood a level sill. None of them actually understood any of the things that were going on with the waterworks. And I sat there, and one lady videoed me. Hopefully she'll put it online and let me know about it so I can make it available to you guys. But videoed me explaining this. And in five minutes, all of these people, you can see their eyes widen, and you can see when a person goes from, I don't get it, to I do get it. You can see the aha in their eyes. They all had it in five minutes. All of them understood what they had been struggling for a week to understand. And the reality was, if he would have used a whiteboard and a freaking marker, or done some slideshows and some pictures, he could have conveyed that even with the translation issues. But he, he refused to do any of that, apparently, until the last day when I wasn't there to see it, when he showed his pictures from Russia and the designs that he's done in Russia. So, it, 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 to me, my coming away from this is that Sepp Holzer is a genius designer, And the only way a student is going to get the most from him is to truly understand 90% of the material and then go observe the other 10%. That he is not a good lecturer, not a good teacher. He seems to be a really good writer, and maybe when he's boxed into having to write it down, he does better. Maybe if I spoke German, he'd be a better teacher. But I'm going to tell you, if you get a chance to see Sepp in the United States, and you're expecting to get the level of teaching you would from myself or Lawton in that seminar-style environment, you're going to be disappointed. If you'll go with an open mind and focus on the observation of the installation, you will come away with great things. But you cannot go and expect, and you will not get straight answers to simple questions. And it may be because of the stupid questions. I don't know. But that was my experience And I just had to say it because I made the recommendation that people go. And I feel bad in a way that I know some people didn't get what they want. I know one couple, I never even got to meet them because they left before I got there, but they did ask for a refund and they did receive it. So um, that was uh, 
that was interesting. I also want to talk about the dangers of hero worship. And I think this is prevalent not just in permaculture, but probably in radio and politics and everything else. There were people at this event that if Sepp Holzer would have went out into the audience and picked up somebody's dog, and there were dogs running all around, and tied it on a chain in front of her and peed on the dog, and then kicked it, and then went and found a nun and rubbed her face on the dog's butt where he had peed on it and said, that's permaculture, they would have went, wow, that's amazing. I'm going to go do that too. There were people that were that bad. that When anybody said anything negative about what they were getting out of the event, and, and here's some of the negative. We spent about four days planting seeds and potatoes. And that was pretty much 90% of what was done on those days, other than uh, you know 20-minute, 30-minute sessions of asking questions and not getting answers. Now, Katarina, who runs the place, comes out and says, I'm not using you guys as cheap labor. And quite a few people pointed out, no, you're not using us as cheap labor, because if we were cheap labor, we would have been paid a low wage to do labor. Instead, you're using us as labor that's paid you. I felt there was a total lack of respect from Katarina as a landowner that was getting this entire project, or most of this project anyway, financed out of the pockets of the people that were there, was getting a tremendous amount of work done, and it was because I think mostly the event was poorly organized. So I learned a lot about what to do with events in the future. I'll talk about that in a second. Um, but I also want to kind of finish up with some with another thought is, there is a need for people to actually listen to people who have done it, because I think part of the negativity back from, from Sepp and, and Katarina was people that didn't appreciate what they were getting. And people that were saying, why can't Sepp do this? Or why, well, you didn't go there to find out, you know, why Sepp doesn't do things the way that some other person does. You went there to find out how he does what he does. So the, the problem with planting the potatoes and the seeds and the beans and the corn, uh, for people, and I didn't do a lot of this. I did a little bit. Okay, I got it now and I'm on and I'm not here to plant your shit for you since I brought in half your revenue and didn't even get a thank you for that, by the way. From, from the entire time I was there, uh, Katarina's son said, oh, thanks, when somebody told him who I was. But she never came up to me and said, Jack, thank you. And that was kind of like rude, too, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and I didn't go out of my way to ask for it. I just wanted to see what would happen. And I, I felt like it it didn't happen. Um, but in the end, you don't say, well, this doesn't work. If the guy's been doing it since 1957 and it works for him, maybe it would work for you too. So I think the student has to have a certain number of receptiveness. But I also think people putting on events need to understand when people pay to come, shut down their life to come, spend lots of money to take care of their animals or shut down their business and all these other things that come there and help you and put work into the system that you kind of owe them. And when they're bitching, you don't tell them to shut up, which is basically what happened on a Wednesday. You know, basically, we don't want to hear you complain anymore. Get with the program or go home. If you don't want to work, you don't have to. But this is what we're doing. Uh, and, and, and statements like, you know, we're not responsible for your safety around the equipment. Uh, that was just asinine. Uh, and then what did make it better is the one day we're out there doing it, I said, you know, if they wanted this to run well, they should put team leaders together, and each team leader should be responsible for a task, and they should rotate the teams, and things got better after that because they did it. I don't know if somebody heard me or somebody came up with the idea independently, but that's what they did, and it worked better. 
I want to talk a little bit about how I'm planning on running some events. As, as most of you know, I'm actually looking for land in Texas again. We have an apartment ba- in Dallas that we, we share with our son. We have our homestead up here. We kind of go back and forth uh, often, but we want a piece of land that's that's bigger and can be managed better and have more water on it. And my thought with the bug out location mentality is really make my area not well known. I've had plenty of people up here to this place, but I've never had a group event. Um, I've changed my mind with that. You know, I look at it this way. If the shit ever really hits the fan, you come try to steal what I have, you've made a bad choice. So when we get land, we actually want to do some events similar to this. And I'll be honest, we do want people, we bring 20 people or 30 people in, which by the way is how, they had like 80 people at this event. And I think it was for the labor force. I wouldn't bring that many people in. But if I did something with, let's say, a Jeff Lawton, because Jeff is the guy that I really really admire and respect out of all these people that I think can do the most, especially in a southern climate and, and waterworks and earthworks. And I brought him in. Let's say I decided I wanted to bring him in for seven days of instruction or five days of instruction. I would want to know what his fee is to book him for, if it was seven, at least nine to ten. So I want him at least three days on site with just me and four crew leaders. And I want to bring four crew leaders in that are willing to dedicate their time and effort and be there, and I want to walk the entire property with those crew leaders and a guy like Lawton and myself. I want to plan out the entire design, and when the class shows up, I don't want there to be any arguing. I don't want us deciding whether or not a dam's going to go there or not. I want the, the test holes dug. I want to know what kind of material we're working with for a dam. I want to know where the swales are going to go. I want to have it basically surveyed to do so. And I want to bring my class, and I want to hit the ground running on day one. I want to do far more lecture than was done. I want to make sure that people get good two to three hours a day of classroom-style instruction with pictures and diagrams, and I make the most out of that genius that's there. I want the land development, because the excavator work and all, you don't need to be there for all of it just to see it start, mid-tier, and end going on when you're in class. I want to tell people, yes, this is a working seminar. You're going to do work, but maybe you're going to do two hours of work a day. And you're not going to do the same task three or four days in a row for six hours a day. That That is abuse. That was abuse of the people that were there as far as I was concerned. If, if they had said, you know, this seminar's uh 250 bucks, but you come do work, or you pay two grand and you get to, to just watch, that would have been different. But no, these people all paid good money to go there and do work in the sun for this lady. And again, I don't feel like it was fully appreciated. Now, she may have appreciated it, but it certainly wasn't expressed in a way where anybody really felt it, at least the people I talked to. And I talked to a lot of people while I was there. My concept would be to do that. My concept would also be that, and this is for anybody running events like this, especially, I know Bill Wilson, Ben Falk, you guys listen to this, and if you're running events outside of the standard PDC, here's some things to think about. Every student that came to one of my events would receive a survey before they showed up. Where are you from? What's your climate like? How much land do you own? What's your name? What's your kid's name? What do you most hope to gain from this? What are your primary goals? Seed mixes are cheap to make. I would make every one of my students at least one seed mix personally for them. The guy that told me I'm in Pennsylvania, I want to paddock raise chickens, I'd make him a seed mix. Now, maybe not enough to do his whole whole yard, right? But enough to get started and to know and have the formula and where the seeds come from. And when he came in, I would say, Joe, here's your seed mix. And part of my classroom instruction would be I'll take four of my students in four different areas with four different goals and go, here's how I came up with the mix. 
hopefully the 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 big name personality would give me some assistance uh with with doing that but then i would bring people into an environment where they felt like they were personally looked after they were heard before they got there even if the the seminar's not really specifically about paddocking chickens if we're talking about making seed mixtures then that can go over there everybody can learn from that because we're looking at the climate the length of day the time of planting and the goals and see how we can take all the seeds that are available versus those that we'd like to have that are not available and make a freaking mix and do it for those people and everybody leave with that. And everybody leave with a plan, not just being able to see how the design came up on my property, but the thinking about their own property. Sketch Instructions in advance. Sketch your own property out. Here's the things you need when you come. The sun in the summer, the sun in the winter. The east, the north, the south. Primary winds. Right? What's there now? Bring that drawing with you. We'll have, I'll look at it. Other students will look at it. Team leaders will look at it. The key, though, with the team leaders would be when you got... A guy like Jeff Lawton, who you spent a lot of money to bring in to do this type of thing, standing there talking, and someone's not getting it, he can't go over and over and over and over again. But if I get it, my wife gets it, and my four team leaders get it, and Jeff gets it, and some of the students are getting it as we go, then everybody can lean on each other and learn instead of being left to just dangle with basically, you don't get it, so tough shit, which is how I felt at certain times. Like, well, you get it when you see it. These people weren't getting it when they saw it. Because it's when you dig a dam, you, you envision a big hole, and it doesn't look like that because we're using the land's contours. And you start going down before you go up with the impoundment, and people don't understand this. I have to say I really understood it because I had studied it from the Holzer angle, the Lawton angle, the Mollison angle, angle, the Holgram angle, the Spirko angle in depth for years before I went. If I had turned up there and my experience was backyard permaculture in a PDC – I would have probably been as lost as most of the people that seemed to be lost there, which seemed like the majority. There were more lost than understood. So those are some thoughts, and those are some things to look forward to. We're going to do this. We're going to find ourselves 10 to 20 acres in Texas. We're going to run some programs like this. And uh, there will be limited seating, and it's not going to be, ch- especially if I bring Lawton, right? We'll try to do things low cost for some workshops. And, and, and you know, if Lawton comes in, basically what I have to do is go, Okay, what does it take to get you here, dude? He's an Australian, man. He's demanded all over the world. How much does it cost? What do I need to have ready for you? Right? Don't don't have a guy show up and then go, you need a whole bunch of plants and go, I can't afford them. How many plants? Here's a print. Let's give a rough estimate. Let me get things cataloged. Let me get supplies linked up. Let me get the excavators scheduled. Tell me how big of an excavator I'm going to need. And I add all of that up and go, okay, the cost of the event is $10,000. Okay? If that's the case, and it's probably more, right? Because uh, God, probably, probably ten grand to get Jeff. So if it's twenty thousand dollars and forty people can come, it's five hundred dollars a piece, and I make no money, but I cover the cost of the event. That's that's how I plan on running my events. And if it's a simple, smaller event, and the cost of what we're going to do is five grand, and uh, you know, and 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 twenty people come, you know, it, it's a lot less money. You know, it's 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 a lot easier to work that out. And, and that's what I think that landowners that are getting the work done and are getting labor applied to the event should be doing is planning it out so there's no surprises, uh, structure of the class. 
at 8 o'clock, we'll do this. At 9 o'clock, we're going to do this. And they, when they gave us like lip whooping day, they said, of course things change and then it rains or it gets cold or we hit clay where we didn't expect it. And we, have, of course you have to change things, but it doesn't, it doesn't belie having a basic structure and committing that a student that comes to you to learn A through A through D learns A through D before they leave and gets to see it. And if they don't see it, then it's not like, oh, you're screwed. There's an apology. I'm sorry. We couldn't do this. We're going to do this instead to make up for it. Um, there was a lot of times where it felt like make work. And I, I don't want to bitch or anything, but I just want you guys to understand that I think a lot of people that listen to this show are going to be going to, assisting with, or running events. And I think this is not about permaculture. This is about wilderness skills events. I've seen great wilderness skills events. I've seen terribly run ones. Um, but know and have the plan and have the basis covered before you initiate it, I think, is the way to go. But hopefully you've learned maybe some of that and you've learned more about permaculture and halter permaculture and, and what's possible and eliminating limited thinking today. And I'm kind of back in the groove now. I'm going to have a great interview with uh, a gentleman named Franz tomorrow that's actually going to talk about sailing across the Atlantic in a boat, boat he built himself, building a bug-out location, the life of a, of a kind of a... A sailor slash uh, vagabond. Uh, a little bit about ham radio, uh, building your own house, building your own boat. That should be a cool interview. I have him lined up to interview in about two hours from now. And uh, I'll have that episode for you tomorrow. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another episode of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution is you.